0: Everyone. welcome back to Talking Tudors episode 153. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I'm so happy that you could join me. I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron, and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and never miss an episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tutors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be A Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. April's Prize is a wonderful book and stationery bundle sponsored by Shaw House, a striking Elizabethan manor house built in 1581 and located in Berkshire, England. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors Live Talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. At the end of the month, I'll be chatting to Dr. Owen Emerson about a new exhibition that's opened at Hever Castle, entitled Becoming Anne, Connections Culture Court. Please get in touch with me if you'd like to register for this event. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I'd love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag ILoveTalkingTudors. In other news, if you've always been fascinated by the life and times of Anne Boleyn and have dreamed of learning from leading Berlin experts, including Dr. Owen Emerson and Professor Susanna Lipscomb, I invite you to join 365 Days with Anne Boleyn, a year-long journey of learning and discovery that I'll be leading in 2023. You'll find a full list of what's included and all other details on my website. I do hope you'll consider joining us on this unique and immersive learning experience. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about Catherine of Aragon is Professor Teresa Ehrenfeit. fight Teresa writes about queens and queenship in late medieval and early modern Europe. Her most recent book, Catherine of Aragon, Infanta of Spain, Queen of England, published by Penn State University Press, began with a pair of shoes. It looks at Catherine's life through material culture, such as clothing, books, household goods and devotional objects. Erin Feit is also the author of The King's Other Body, Maria of Castile and The Crown of Aragon, and a textbook, Queenship in Medieval Europe. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles. <laughs> Welcome to Talking Tutors, Teresa. How are you?
1: I am well. It's a lovely sunny day here in Seattle.
0: Oh, beautiful. Lucky you, we've had a lot of rain in Sydney, Mm. the the never ending rainy season. Uh, Let's begin, Teresa, by you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background.
1: I am obviously an American scholar, so I grew up in the Midwest of the United States and went to graduate school in New York City at Fordham University and had the great good fortune to work with Joseph O'Callaghan on Medieval Spain. And he was working on kingship, but I wanted to do queens and queenship. And as open-minded and wonderful as he was, he said, of course, what would you like to work on? And at the time, I wasn't sure, but I looked first at the aunt of Isabel. So the great aunt of Catherine of Aragon, and I've sort of been working my way through the genealogy ever since. I guess Mary is the next logical choice, isn't she, from that one? But I, my, my training in, in graduate school was in medieval Spain. So that's why I could, I could bring to that first chapter in the book so much on Catherine's early childhood, because I could wander around Spain and get to know her. And I work mostly on kings and or queens and queenships. So most of my books have been either collections of essays, one textbook, and then two monographs on queens themselves.
0: Wonderful. And we are going to talk about your excellent biography of Catherine of Aragon. So tell us a little bit about the, the novel way in which you've actually structured your book and how you've used objects to study Catherine's life.
1: It was a book born out of frustration and that I was reading biographies and they all read exactly alike. And I thought, this is kind of boring. And I thought, where's Catherine in all of these things? And most of them focused on Henry, because as we now know, all those of us that do women's history know that the records in the archives tend to be for men, about men, by men. And so Catherine, as important as she was, and as long as she lived after 1513, when when Wolsey comes in, he really is so powerful and so successful at what he does. And she is so preoccupied with having children that her presence in the archives almost falls out. And so very little was known about her. And I thought, this is crazy. How are we going to know this person? And I began looking at inventories. And inventories led me to possessions and led me to questions. And I think the first question I had was, whoa, what are these shoes? I'd never heard of them before. But I think more than that, it was the emotional resonance of four little blankets that were baby blankets for Mary. And I'm sitting in the British Library. I'm reading this inventory and I'm thinking whoa she saved those blankets for 20 years she wanted Mary to have them and all of a sudden Catherine just her life opened up to me and I thought what else is out there and I went on a treasure hunt and boy did I find things it was so fabulous to wander around England and just open up drawers at the VNA and find things that Catherine touched and owned. And the other thing that was frustrating is many of the archival works or the curatorial practices in places like the V&A and the British Library and the British Museum focus their collections on the ruler at the time who was Henry VIII. So everything is cataloged under Henry. I had to poke through all of his books before you realize, wait, these are Catherine's books. And so my next project is to separate them out because I think it's really unlikely that Henry read Dante's works on, the, on whatever in Spanish. I just don't think he was reading Spanish. So I'm going to go through this summer when I'm in England, and sort through the books that are at the British Library.
0: Well, that does sound like another very exciting project. So let's um have let's think about Spain at the time of Catherine's birth in December 1485. What was it like?
1: It was cosmopolitan, so that it had it was multilingual, multi-ethnic, multi-faith for about the first seven or eight years of her life and then the uh, Fernando and Isabel conquer uh, Granada and subdue it and bring it under their realm and they expel the Jews so it's as though two faiths two cultures are completely subdued so it was a period of profound transformation from a realm that had been really far more cosmopolitan and open and became a little bit more inward looking after that although it was outward looking in the fact that they sponsored the the voyages of, of Christopher Columbus so it's A little bit of outward looking, inward looking, it was wealthy. It was really tied into both the Mediterranean and the rest of Europe so that there were strong connections with, with the kingdoms of France, with the realms of the empire, the Habsburg Empire, Italians, city-states in particular, because of trade. Uh, they had connections to North Africa and Portugal, and England was the one place where they hadn't really had a whole lot of connection. So Fernando and Isabel, with this wealth and this power, decided to put their kids in marriages that allowed the realm, the, the, the kingdoms of Castile and Aragon, to really have an international cosmopolitan kind of feel to them. and that was what. Catherine's marriage was all about. She was intended to cement and solidify that relationship with England.
0: And you've mentioned Catherine's parents, um, Isabel and Fernando. What what was her relationship like with them and with her, her siblings as well?
1: We know more about her relationship with her mother than her father. And I think that's because it's natural for daughters to be closer to their mothers in some ways, but also because Isabel was a mother hen in that she really watched out for her kids. She supervised their education really carefully. And as Fernando and Isabel traveled around the realms to either solidify kind of the relationships with other parts of the realm or engage in battle with the uh, Muslims in Granada, the kids all came along with Isabel and not Fernando. So I think she was much more close to her mother and her siblings. And as they grew older, she was the baby of the family. I think they kind of watched out for her and protected her. And because she was the baby, and of course, as babies are, she was much loved by her mother. She learned how to be a queen, watching her mother be a queen. I think her greatest education, Beyond the languages, beyond all the famous scholars that came to Spain and took care of their education, despite all of that, I think it was watching her mother be queen that helped her when she got to England because she knew what a queen was supposed to do. And I, that, I, you just can't underestimate that no. that wonderful connection that she had with her mother. So that when she's 15 and she's about to leave Castile, her mother delays this for like months. Like, no, 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 you can't go. You can't go. You can't go. Like, she's sick. Oh, she can't go. Oh, there's something going on in England. She can't go. So you get this sense that her mother was very reluctant to see her yeah. go. because She knew she would never see her again. And yeah. that's heartbreaking.
0: It is, isn't it? And it's interesting because obviously in England, you know, we're accustomed to the children being placed in their own establishment very quickly you know Mm -hmm. from when from the time they're infants and it's interesting that they were they remained together as a family almost a family unit well in
1: part for England it's because of the unsettled part of the monarchy because of the pretenders to the throne, because of Perkin Warbeck and kind of or Lambert Simnel, those really made Fernando and Isabel nervous. Like, if we send our daughter there, will she be okay? So they didn't do what a lot of people do, which is what you just said, the sense of send your kid there when she's two years old, and then she'll learn the language and the customs. So when Catherine got there when she was 15, almost 16 years old, she knew much more about Spain than England. Um, and I think it was a culture
0: shock for her. In a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, she had Isabel as an incredible role model and someone to look up to and learn from. Tell us about some of the other women that served Catherine at the Spanish court and maybe some of the lessons that you think she learned from them.
1: One of the Ah, the earliest, most formidable, form, so sort of foundational relationships was with Ines de Vanegas, who was her governess and her daughters. And Ines, I think, really watched out for her. She dressed her, kept her at court. So whenever Isabel would travel, Ines and her daughters would come along with her. And when Catherine went to England, they came along. So there was that continuity of care. They were her strongest relationships. The other woman who is really important is Maria de Salinas, who came along and really embedded herself into the English aristocracy. And when Catherine was near death in 1536, it was Maria de Salinas who knocked on the door and beat the door down and said, you're going to let me in because uh, this is my friend. They had known each other since birth. And so that long continuity made a big difference. I think it made Catherine this kind of hybrid queen She's queen of England, but she retained so much of her Spanishness until she died. So those women were really important to her, more than just a governess. I think they taught her how to move, how to act, how to live in the world, how to be a woman at court. And I think also between the two, those two women, all of those women, and her mother, she learned modesty, which I think serves her really well when she's a queen. There's never been even the slightest hint of any kind of sexual impropriety with Catherine. I think she took that very seriously. So her her model is humble and loyal and I think she was pretty loyal.
0: Yes, very successful queen. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of her education, what specific things is she learning? And what role did Isabella play in this?
1: Isabel was really crucial in this because Isabella herself was not trained to be queen. She had an older brother and there was a civil war that preceded Isabella's uh, successful capturing of the crown. And she knew that she was undereducated for the job because her mother was just saying, no, you're just going to marry someone and that's that. And so she wanted to make sure that her daughters were really well educated. And she brought to court people like Juan Luis Vives and a lot, and Alessandro Geraldino, these wonderful humanist scholars. And they structured the curriculum. And along with Beatriz Galindo, uh, La Latina is her name, they put together a really impressive curriculum for both the girls and the one son, Juan. Juan got a little bit more in terms of military and governance and things like that. They all got the same grounding in the quadrivium and the trivium. So Catherine was multilingual. She could speak Latin so that even Thomas More commented on how how she was just such a delight to talk to because she could really, really manage Latin in a way that he was surprised to find. So she had theology like literature, languages, philosophy, and then the tough mom queenship that she got from her mother. So she had this really strong book learning. And books were throughout her life, which is why my next project is on her books, because I think this is a woman who loved books. And you go through the inventories and there's like 27 books unnamed. And I want to know what they are. And one of them I found, only one at the Morgan Library, but that's it. And so I'm on a hunt. The next treasure hunt is for books because she was such a bookish child. And that really was part of her personality. She, and she handed that, passed that on down to uh, Mary, her daughter, so that when Mary was a baby, she supervised Mary's education in imitation of her mother supervising her education. So this lineage of learning is really crucial to understanding
0: Catherine's personality. I'm sure our listeners are quite familiar with the Tudor Court, but can you tell us a little bit about the Spanish court. What was that actually like?
1: Not that much different from the Tudor court in that the physical structures were similar and that there were public and private spaces. It was also functioned as military spaces. So Catherine grew up in a place where he'd get up in the morning and stretch and have whatever passed for breakfast that day. And I would love to know what they had for breakfast, but i that's another research project. And then go about their day getting, getting education, getting tutored, things like that in their own private spaces. So the women's spaces were separate from men's spaces for the most part, even though there were communal spaces for celebrating, for parties, for dancing, for fiestas. But there's the, the difference between the English court and the Castilian court is that the Castilian court was itinerant, whereas England, it stayed pretty much close to the home counties. It was London, it was Greenwich, it was Eltham, Richmond. You were pretty close to where everybody else was in London, but in Castile, they moved all over the place because the realm was, um, had to be governed directly by the king and queen. And so they had to go to these places. So Catherine went to Toledo and Cordoba and Sevilla and uh, just everywhere, north, south, to Barcelona, to Valencia. So their court literally was itinerant and it moved with them so they would pick up stuff and then land in another castle somewhere and then set up shop and stay there for a few months and then move on so it's what it gave her was a cosmopolitan outlook and they the the people mentioned that when the court came to their town the women at court dressed like the locals did to sort of be sensitive to who they were and what they were doing So there's this sense of moving around, adapting, learning new languages, because there were at least four or five languages spoken in Spain at the time. So it gave her an outlook of like, yep, we move around. We're sensitive to our people. We learn what they do and we govern accordingly.
0: You get a real sense of why she was so successful when she arrived in England. Yeah. It's so interesting. And
1: the other different thing I think, and this is really fascinating to me, is the foods. Because Catherine came from a place where you ate oranges, figs, lots of pork. Everybody ate lots of pork. But the fruits and vegetables were totally different than England. And I think the first year that she lives in England, in 1501, 1502, um, when she's in England, she's sick a lot. And I think it's that she was adjusting to a new climate, which was colder and darker and rainier and a whole new set of foods. I think she didn't have citrus fruits. She didn't have pomegranates. She didn't have the wealth of the stuff that's grown in Spain. And that was a difference for her. And then just the, the way it's prepared, the different kinds of breads, the different kinds of ways that you eat, I think must have been a bit of a shock to her. Although I'd like to know more about that because that's, that was a very general statement, but I think we can say more with more research.
0: Yeah, I think it must have been an incredible culture shock having visited, you know, as I'm sure you have the Alhambra with its incredible, you know, open spaces and the breezes and and then, for example, heading to Ludlow. And and it was
1: my trip to Ludlow that made it really clear to me what it must have been like for her that summer of 1501, that winter of 1501, 1502, because it's, pretty remote. And it's a very, it's a very formidable castle in that it's tough and rugged, and it's intended to be one of the March's castles, right? It's supposed to hold the borders. It is not a great place to be for women. And unfortunately, when I was in Ludlow, they were doing renovations on a little house that she inhabited. So this summer, when I'm back in England again, I'm going to Ludlow, and I want to see the renovations on that house because she apparently did live separate from the castle because the castle was just so cold. And so filled with men in arms that it wasn't very hospitable for a woman.
0: So I actually visited that little house and uh, but at you? that I did it was many years ago at that point. Um, yeah, I wasn't sure if that was just a story that she'd lived in there or not. So that's that's I don't interesting.
1: Know, but I'm gonna go visit it and I'll let you know if it's really yeah, let idea. me know.
0: You mentioned that she she doesn't go to England until she's around 15, I think you said around there. But when did these negotiations actually begin for her marriage to Prince Arthur?
1: When she was about two. In 1487, the ambassadors begin to draft, uh, draft documents of marriage treaties, and they get revised and revised and revised. Every time Perkin Warbeck does something, they get revised again. And so there's this constant tweaking, I guess, of that, but from very, very early on. Fernando and Isabel were ambitious, and they wanted their children placed in all kinds of prominent realms. What's interesting is all of her other siblings, except for Juan, married within kingdoms of Castile Aragon and Portugal. Juan married Margaret of Austria because that's... Was. Yes, yes,
0: it was. Yeah, it she was a just... crisscross
1: with Juana and Philip of Burgundy. And that was the one time that they married outside the realm except for Catherine. Everybody else stayed almost within the borders, with south of the Pyrenees. They all went to Portugal. So that ambition was a beginning of things. They really wanted to see it happen. Although it did certainly take shape when Juana, Catherine's sister, and Philip had a pack of children, and one of them was Charles, and he became Charles V. That was when the ambitions of Fernando and Isabel really took shape as a world power. I don't think they ever imagined it to be as big as it was, but it was a substantial piece of imperial power early on.
0: And I wanted to talk to you about some of those possessions that you spoke of earlier. So what sorts of things did Catherine actually take with her from Spain to England? And what do you think they tell us about Catherine?
1: Well, the first thing, and the thing that really struck me the most was the shoes because they were so distinctive and because she wore them through her whole life in England. When she dies in 1536, that inventory has the chopines They were Mediterranean shoes. So to me, they suggested that here's a woman who is born and bred in a warm climate where there's bathhouses and you just, you wear these shoes and they could be either flat soled or like cork soled platform shoes, sort of like Lady Gaga kind of shoes. And they were big and decorated and beautiful. And they suggest that she loved lavish. She was flashy. I saw those shoes and the sour, dour kind of Catherine that I had imagined from all those other biographies that I had read, disappeared from view. I thought, wait, that woman that Tremlett and Mattingly described is not the woman wearing these shoes. And so it was shoes and it was textiles and tapestries. She took stuff with her from Spain that reminded her of where she had come from. So napkins that are bordered with castles and lions, clothing that has this lovely, it's called black stitch or blackwork embroidery. And it comes from, it's a Mediterranean style and it is part of Catherine's legacy to England that She brought this style of embroidery. It became all the rage and it goes all the way into the Victorian era. You can see the kind of black stitch embroidery that catherine brought with her she also brought the hoot skirt and so when we think of elizabethan fashion we think of these outrageous skirts that just you know sort of go out in three feet in all directions um those were part of the verdugados which came in catherine's cases with her she brought pottery this beautiful tinware glazed pottery majolica pottery with her in the containers because there's pieces in the victorian albert and in the british museum that come from Spain and they come they have the arms of her great aunt Maria of Castile on them so they literally came along for the ride with her I think she brought glassware she also brought jewelry I don't know exactly what we don't have any of it remains anymore but we have descriptions of the gems that she brought and the things that she wore black velvet there is the Spanish court the fashion at the Spanish court was to wear black velvet so lots of black velvets came in her bags with her and then yards and yards and yards of ribbons and silk tapestries and silk dresses and silk gowns because the Spanish silks were just so beautiful and so rich and so lots and lots of reminders of Spanish fashion that she and they commented on it. So when she makes her royal entry the first time into into London, people comment on the, the skirt, the shoes, the hair, because her hair was down and she had kind of a reddish blonde hair. And just her overall demeanor was so different from what the English were expecting. Yeah. So yeah,
0: she brought a lot of Spain with her. She did. And that paints a very different picture of Catherine, doesn't it, of the, the Catherine that normally, I suppose, jumps to most people's minds when they think of the older Catherine, I think.
1: I think yeah. it's actually closer to the Catherine that's in the musical six. Much closer. I mean, not yeah. that she's wearing this tiny little skirt, no, you yeah. know, all, all trussed up, but I think it's that sense of fun. Mm -hmm. Catherine was fun, she danced, she loved music. She was not this sour person. I mean, I think that's what neglect and divorce might do to you, but before the divorce, She was lively.
0: And so unfortunately, her first marriage, of course, doesn't last very long because Arthur dies. So in 1502, did Catherine want to return to Spain? And what were her parents advising her at the time?
1: I think she wanted to do what her parents told her to do. She was very dutiful and they couldn't make up their mind. And again, it had to do with some instability because after Arthur died, there was this sense of, okay, now what? And What do you do with someone who is that young a bride? Do you bring her home and then have her marry some local noble? I don't think Fernando Isabel thought that was even remotely possible. There was no one on the continent who was suitable at the same time in terms of age. I don't think there was any Scottish princes at the time. So there was a really limited pool of possibilities. Uh, I think there was at one point, maybe a suggestion that there was some Italian city-state mogul that she would have been connected to. But again, they were like, no, no, it's gotta be somebody royal. So they were waiting and they waited just long enough that Catherine and Henry got to know each other at court. And so at some point, I think it's a waiting game I think they're waiting for, they don't know about Henry VII's health. Fernando and Isabel don't know about that. They don't know what's going on. But I don't think Henry VII did. Um, they had no idea that he was going to die when he did. But I think that kind of the, waiting paid off really really well because it did give Catherine and Henry a chance to get to know each other during that period she was uh, Fernando's ambassador after her mother dies she becomes the royal ambassador from the Spanish court to the English court and that gives her a kind of public role public facing role that gave her a little bit more clout but I think it's the death of Henry VII that sealed the deal because at that point in time Prince Henry says I'm marrying her. And that was an interesting choice, I thought, on his part. He could have yeah. picked anyone, but he picked the one that he was that he knew the best and was closest to, even though she was older than him by a couple of years. He was comfortable with that that says a lot about him at that point in time I think
0: and it's so understandable why the people loved her so much they'd obviously known her since she was you know a young teenager watched yeah. her grow up it must have been quite a shock yes when Henry chose his new wife later on um,
1: although Isabel or I'm not Isabel Elizabeth of York was an absolute wonderful woman yes. in terms of taking care of her she made sure that she knew how death affects you. And so when her mother died and there was like four deaths in a really short period of time for Catherine's life. And so she knew that Arthur's death and her mother's death really was hard for her. And so she reached out in a way that was just so wonderfully moving. And I think that's why Catherine felt comfortable there. She's like, this is, these are not, these are good people. I, you know, I like being here. And so I think she never really put up a big fuss to say, mom, I want to come home.
0: Yeah, I like um, in Elizabeth of York's payment books, when Catherine pops up in there, it's, it's quite nice seeing that connection between yeah. the, the two women. Yeah. Uh,
1: and unfortunately, but... she dies quite young, yes. quite, quite soon yeah. after that, which is really quite sad it is i imagine a couple of years at court at durham house were grim as the two kings henry the seventh and fernando kind of tussle over money and what to do and how to pay for it and she's caught in the middle and she writes letters to her father saying you know daddy i need some cash and it's just not coming because they're both in these high level negotiations and she's just caught. and so i think she turns to books and embroidery and prayers and just puts her head down and waits
0: And you were saying that not much of, obviously, Catherine's jewellery survives, or none none of Catherine's jewellery survives, unfortunately. But what about some of those other possessions that you were speaking of? Do do we have any of those? And do you have a a favourite artefact that you found while you were doing your research?
1: I do. and Some of them do exist. The trick is you really have to go through museum catalogues item by item by item and say, wait a minute what would Henry do with a pair of earrings, right? Or whatever. But the one that the item that I absolutely adore, and it's because it's so exquisite, is the boxwood rosary from the Low Countries. That is astounding. And it's always seen as something that Henry owned. But if you read, if you look at the diameter of where the little ring that your finger is supposed to go through, and you think, I don't think Henry's fingers were that skinny. So I read that as, and and rosaries are more Marian devotion. But it is an exquisite object and it just blew me away i thought how did we not talk about this before and it, it came from margaret of austria as a gift to them and i think it was a kind of a subtle gift to catherine at a really tough moment in her life saying you're gonna need this here here's this lovely exquisite gift as a kind of diplomatic gift but it's meaningful and the called the ave bead the big bead at the end of it has when you open it up you crack it up in like a walnut shell when you open it up it has the only known image we have of Henry and Catherine side by side. And it's beautiful. It is microscopic. You open it up and you really have to get like within an inch of it to see it. And they're sitting there in front of, they're in, in, in the church, so in the chapel. And you just think, wow. So that's that's my favorite object. It sounds really beautiful. Really beautiful. Oh, yeah.
0: really beautiful. That sounds amazing. Where's that kept, Teresa?
1: Do you know? Oh, it's Chatsworth House. Yeah. Devonshire Collections at Chatsworth fantastic please I now need to make a I need to add one more place to my how my trip this long this year and to go to Chatsworth
0: (laughs) well exactly I think I I was toying with the idea of going there when I go over and and I think you've just convinced me to go. there you
1: go oh it's just a beautiful object and I've seen bits and pieces of it in in museum collections like not it's all intact but other kinds of objects like that and it just blows me away every time I see them just the exquisiteness of those objects and that she held that in her hands that's right yes That feels like some kind of connection to the past that you just can't get in any other way.
0: Absolutely. I totally agree with you. And so you you talked about the inventories that were done after Catherine's death. So what are some of the possessions that we find there? You you mentioned those those blankets that I think is so moving. Um, What do they tell us about her, the things she had at that point?
1: She didn't have much. That's what they tell us. She had small stools. She had a lot of household possessions, but you get a sense for how small how how little she had at that point in time things had been taken away from her henry had over the course of the 5 years before she died pushed her household into smaller and smaller places and so you get frayed embroidered cushions on stools mirrors game boards things like that but not much and only two or three things were literally in the, in the inventory, it will say, were seized by Henry and Anne for their own collection, which suggests that the rest of it was just so poor. But she had books and she had 27 of them. And one of them is the one that I found at the Morgan Library This when I was there in December. It's a, it's a, a book of hours and it's inscribed and it's just exquisite. And um, I'm, I'm going to look for the other ones that are in there. But she had a lot of books, I think. So I think that she spent her years after the divorce, after Mary was sort of pushed away from her with her few ladies in waiting, praying, reading and embroidering. Although there was lots of embroidery stuff, lots of needles, pins, threads, all the equipment for needlework was in there. So I think she kept really, really busy doing that. And that sort of occupied her brain. I think she also sang, but I have no records of that because she loved music. And there was a, there, and, and Margaret of Austria dedicated a kind of a musical composition to her, a series of motets. So I think there was music.
0: So how would you sum up the woman that you came to know during, during the writing of your book?
1: She's really complex. She is someone who is smart and savvy, and I don't think she's powerless. I think she was overpowered. I think Henry just had that extra edge of being a king. So I don't see her as tragic, even though her life ends in a tragic way. I think the most of her life was spent joyously in Spain. And then her short life with Arthur was probably getting to know each other. I think she was probably pretty happy there. Her life at Durham was increasingly tough, but then I think the first two decades of her marriage to Henry were quite wonderful. So she's not entirely this totally pious woman who grouchy at the end of her life. She was much more than that. She was a patron of the arts, she was a patron, particularly of literature and humanism. She was a devoted mother. And I think her pregnancies, the, the sections that I worked on in the book on her pregnancies were, it took a lot of my time and were really emotional. Cause you get the sense that she really struggled with six pregnancies, two live births, and only one child who lives beyond the age of two months. And so she was a really devoted mother and she was a really good friend to her friends and i think she was a good queen and i think that's evidenced by how people reacted when henry tried to divorce her they were outraged and so she she connected with them whenever she would travel wherever they were whatever they would go on progresses through england she was out there sort of you know shaking hands at the you know the receiving lines kinds of things she connected with people And so she was all the things you expect in a really good queen, except that Henry could not quite provide that extra Y chromosome needed to have a baby that would make him happy. (laughs) So I don't blame her for that. No, absolutely She tried. (laughs) She tried really hard, but is very savvy. So toward the end, she writes to Mary a couple of letters. And both of them are like really complicated letters about queenship, and she can see her very carefully structuring her letters so that she's giving her daughter lessons, but not the kind of lessons that are going to make Henry lose his shirt. So she's really crafty in that way, but she was just overpowered by something bigger than she was.
0: That's a wonderful summary, I think. And Teresa, at the end of episodes of Talking Tutors, what I like to do is just play what I call a game of 10 to go. It's just 10 quick <laughs> questions to get to know you a little bit. Okay. So first question, what was the last book that you read?
1: Uh, Lauren Groff's Matrix. Definitely medievalists are of two minds on that book. So definitely read it and form your own opinion. Okay, it's about okay. Marie de France.
0: Fabulous. I've noted that yeah. one. And <laughs> what do you love about where you live?
1: Ah, uh, the food. Oh, Seattle's just- Food heaven.
0: And what's a favorite holiday destination for you?
1: The Mediterranean. If I had all the money in the world, I'd have a house on the Mediterranean.
0: <laughs> and, and what do you do to relax and unwind?
1: I cook. I love cooking, baking. I've been teaching myself how to make English muffins. <laughs> I
0: like that. And so apart from cooking, do you have other hobbies as well?
1: I love being with museums and arts. I love being in the arts. So music. Oh, opera. I adore. Absolutely adore opera. So wherever I go, I buy tickets to the opera.
0: And is there a new skill that you would like to learn? Fencing. Sounds good. Never tried it, but yeah.
1: it looks kind of intriguing.
0: It does. Absolutely. And what's an ideal Sunday morning for you look like?
1: The newspapers and coffee.
0: Excellent. <laughs>
1: and do you have any pets? I do. We have a cat named Alfie who runs the household.
0: <laughs> I think that's always the way with cats, where people have cats.
1: It is. Once you have a cat, you give up all sense of control. It's like, no, I'm sorry. Uh, the cat owns me.
0: <laughs> so. Wonderful. And uh, what's something you're looking forward to this year?
1: Oh, definitely being in England for six weeks, working on new projects. Wow. I'm going to spend, I'm going to be wallowing about in the <sighs> British Library, and I'm going to go to Chatsworth now that I've remembered about where the, the <laughs> rosary is at. And go back to Ludlow and see if I can get into Catherine's house. And I don't know. Oh, the V&A gift shop. I think I'll be spending a fair bit of money at the gift shop at the Victoria and Albert Museum. <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I love like the videos. gift shops at all those places. I always have to buy buy things there.
1: Oh, and the V&A. <laughs> those people, the buyers, fabulous.
0: Wonderful. And the very last thing is a a Tudor takeaway. So I asked my guests for a little takeaway for our listeners to go off and check out after the episode. Sometimes a website's given or a book to read. Do you have a Tudor takeaway for us?
1: The musical Six. Highly recommend that. I saw that when it was in, I was touring the United States in previews just before the pandemic lockdown. And that soundtrack got me through. (laughs) the pandemic <laughs> so highly recommend that it's it's silly it's fun it's exactly what you need sometimes when the days are just a little too long you just got to turn on yeah. uh Catherine's song no way I love the <laughs> no 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 I mean I just love that I love picturing her telling people no just no way so that's, that's a lot
0: of fun isn't it that is a lot oh of fun. it is a lot. it really is Oh, fantastic. Well, I think that's a fabulous place to end our chat. Thank you so much, Teresa, for coming on the show.
1: This is great. And when we're in England this summer, let's get together in the same place at the same time. I'm going to be there from the middle of June to the end of July, so.
0: That sounds wonderful. Thank you, Natalie. This was really a pleasure. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. the behind the scenes news you'll also find me on twitter my handle is on the Tudor trail and on instagram as the most happy 78. it's time now for us to re-enter the modern world as always i look forward to talking tutors with you again very soon